Welcome to Meet the Author at the Apple Store, Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, journalist and broadcaster, Mariela Frostrup. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Well, um, I think uh, today's guest needs very little introduction. Please welcome Neil Gaiman. Hey, Neil. Hello, Mariela. Um, I thought that um, you'd be far better at paraphrasing your own novel uh, than I would be. So can you just outline the story for us of the ocean at the end of the lane? Yes. Um, right. It's so going to get harder from now oh. on in. Okay. <laughs> it's been... Uh, Mariella and I have actually just come from <laughs> an hour and a half of doing this in the BBC. So it's, it's my new career. I just interview Neil Gaiman. Wherever he goes, I just <laughs> pop up and interview him. That's what I do. That would be brilliant. <laughs> um, so The Ocean at the End of the Lane is a very weird, very personal little novel. It begins with an adult narrator going back after a funeral to uh, the place where he grew up. And uh, the house that he lived in really isn't there anymore, but he drives down to the end of the lane and stops at the farmhouse at the end of the lane and winds up sitting beside the duck pond and remembering, and remembering some very dark, strange, scary things that happened to him when he was seven, um, when their lodger killed himself in the family mini at the end of the lane and summoned some rather dark, strange forces that probably should not have been summoned and uh, that wind up following him home. I think we'll have a little reading, perhaps, that'll give everyone a flavor of the story you've just described. So um, where we are in the story at this point is our... Essentially, the, the, the lodger has died and our young hero, who is seven years old, has just woken up with a coin in his throat that definitely wasn't there when he went to sleep. And uh, he gets up and his sister accuses him of throwing coins. Letty Hempstock, who is one of the women who live in the farm at the end of the lane, was standing at the bottom of the drive beneath the chestnut trees she looked as if she had been waiting for a hundred years and could wait for another hundred. She wore a white dress, but the light coming through the chestnut's young spring leaves stained it green. I said, hello. She said, you were having bad dreams, weren't you? I took the shilling out of my pocket and showed it to her. I was choking on it, I told her. When I woke up, but I don't know how it got into my mouth. If someone had put it into my mouth, I would have woken up. It was just in there when I woke. Yes, she said. My sister says I threw coins at them from the bushes, but I didn't. No, she agreed. You didn't. I said, Letty, what's happening? Oh, she said as if it was obvious. Someone's just trying to give people money, that's all. But it's doing it very badly, and it's stirring things up around here that should be asleep and that's not good. Is it something to do with the man who died? Something to do with him, yes. Is he doing this? She shook her head. Then she said, have you had breakfast? I shook my head. 
Well then, she said, come on. We walked down the lane together. There were a few houses down the lane here and there back then, and she pointed to them as we went past. In that house, said Letty Hempstock, a man dreamed of being sold and of being turned into money. Now he started seeing things in mirrors. What kinds of things? Himself, but with fingers poking out of his eye sockets and things coming out of his mouth, like crab claws. I thought about people with crab legs coming out of their mouths in mirrors. Why did I find a shilling in my throat? He wanted people to have money. The opal miner who died in the car? Yes, sort of. Well, not exactly. He started this all off like someone lighting a fuse on a firework. His death lit the touch paper. The thing that's exploding right now, that isn't him, that's somebody else, something else. She rubbed her freckled nose with a grubby hand. A lady's gone mad in that house, she told me, and it would not have occurred to me to doubt her. She has money in the mattress. Now she won't get out of bed in case someone takes it from her. How do you know? She shrugged. Once you've been around for a bit, you get to know stuff. I kicked a stone. By a bit, do you mean a really long time? She nodded. How old are you, really? I asked. Eleven. I thought for a while. Then I asked, how long have you been eleven for? She smiled at me. We walked past Caraway Farm. The farmers, whom one day I would come to know as Callianders' parents, were standing in their farmyard shouting at each other. They stopped when they saw us. When we rounded a bend in the lane and were out of sight, Letty said, those poor people. Why are they poor people? Because they've been having money problems. And this morning, he had a dream where she, she was doing bad things to earn money. So he looked in her handbag and found lots of folded up 10 shilling notes. She says she doesn't know where they came from and he doesn't believe her. He doesn't know what to believe. All the fighting and the dreams, it's all about money, isn't it? I'm not sure said Letty, and she seemed so grown up then that I was almost scared of her. And that's before things start getting really weird. And yet, you write in the acknowledgements, Neil, that you have plundered the landscape of your own childhood. And I know, I think, that the event that you describe with the lodger committing suicide in the car is something that actually happened when you were a boy? Uh, yes, although I didn't know about it. Um, it's uh, back in about 2003, I bought a Mini Cooper. And uh, you can't say a Mini in America. You have to say Mini Cooper because then they know what you mean. And, uh, and I bought the Mini Cooper and I admired the way that the proportions of the Mini were very like the proportions of the Mini that I remembered as a child, only bigger. So it was the same kind of size relation to me as an adult that the old one had been as a, as a boy. And I was talking to my father. And I said, you know, I used to love our old Mini. You had that wonderful little white Mini. Why did you ever get rid of it? No. And he said, ah, have I never told you that story? And I said, you have never told me that story. And he said, well, we had a lodger who'd come from South Africa. He'd uh, smuggled money of friends of his out of South Africa that he promised to bank for them. 
He went to, started going to the casino in Brighton. Um, he lost all his own money. He decided he would dip into his friend's money until he had made it all back with his infallible gambling system. And then he lost everything. And he stole our car, drove it to the end of the lane, and killed himself in it. And Dad said I w he was woken up in the morning by the police, went down, and uh, had sold the car by afternoon. And that, I, uh, and, and that story just made me go, that's so weird. That happened when I was a kid. I had no idea it had happened. Um, it was the kind of thing that, in my head, when I was seven, happened to other people. And, uh, you know, I, I, I know as a kid reading stories with exciting things happening in them, I would often wonder why exciting things only ever happened in other people's lives. Um, they never happened in your own life. And so I, I think the idea that this thing had happened just sat there like a little grain of grit in my head. And I, I kept thinking, I should do something with that, not with the real thing. I had no interest in what had really happened to the real person, just in this sort of peculiar anecdotal thing that I got from my father. You also um, revisit the landscape of your childhood. Very, uh, very literally. In Sussex. Um, and, uh, you know, it sounds a crazy thing to ask someone who writes novels that are set in other worlds and strange worlds and, you know, are fantasy novels. But how autobiographical is your work generally? Is this a common thing for small things that have happened to you or places you've been or things you've noticed to appear in this way? I'll, I'll generally speaking, one of the differences between my novels and my short fiction is in short fiction, I never have any um, problems going in and plundering things that have happened to me and going, well, this is interesting. I can take that little thing, and that's sort of weird. I'll, I'll put that together with something else and build a fiction around it. And, and, but it's something that I only ever normally do in short fiction. And in, in truth, um, something I was only ever thought I was comfortable doing in short fiction. So when in, in Ocean at the End of the Lane, I started a short story, I was perfectly comfortable putting this stuff in and actually setting the story in the landscape I grew up in. And, and very literally, I mean, you can... I, I swapped out two farms and forgot about a greenhouse. Um, but apart from that, the landscape all works. And... Uh, you could, you know, if you had access to a Google Earth circa 1967, you could actually follow, you could map everything around. You say that, but of course, uh, memory is quite subjective, and I, kn <laughs> I know that at least one of your sisters doesn't remember it in the same way at all. Well, and, 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 and grumble with me um, for moving things around and changing things around. and, and Making things up. Making things <laughs> up. And I had to say, but it's not a memoir. It's not autobiographical. It's completely fictional. It is filled with lies. <laughs> Every second thing in there is a lie. <laughs> Those are not our parents. <laughs> that is not you. She was saying, but people will think it is. I say, no, they won't. He is up against another dimensional Lovecraftian <laughs> version of Mary Poppins. They will not think it's you. Um, thankfully, it's not your parents, because one of the most terrifying scenes, and I won't spoil it for those of you reading it, because there is so much else in the book, but one of the most terrifying scenes is when this poor child, who remains unnamed, which is why we haven't given him a name, um, uh, finds himself being drowned in the bath by his own 
father, possessed, I, I hasten to add. Um, so I, was it around that point that you realized this was not a book for children? That was definitely, <laughs> up until that point, I was sort of, I, I was leaving things kind of in the balance. On I, I, I knew that I was writing a story for my wife. She was in Melbourne making an album, and I was in Florida where I'd gone off to write some stuff, including a Doctor Who episode, and I'd started writing a short story for Amanda. That was getting a bit out of hand. It was definitely no longer a short story. Um, well, she was gone for quite a while, wasn't she? She was. She was <laughs> gone for four months. I just kept writing this thing <laughs> for her um, and actually finished it as she got back. So I, I was writing this story for her. I didn't really know initially who it was going to be for apart from Amanda. I wasn't sure if it was going to be published or, or even publishable. Um, I wasn't sure if it was an adult story or a children's story or quite what it was. And then I started getting to the point where things were getting scarier and scarier. Um, there, was, there was sex in it. There was a certain amount of, of very unpleasant violence, including the, the bathtub scene. And more than anything, there was helplessness. And I thought, I do not want to put helplessness in a book that I'm giving to kids. I, if, I'm, if I'm giving books to kids which have scary things in, I want them to be there to show in the, in the manner of the G.K. Chesterton quote that I made up and put at the beginning of Coraline, um, that they're there to show that dragons, not that dragons exist, but the dragons can be defeated. And the, the cost of defeating the dragons in the ocean at the end of the lane is very, very high. And some of the dragons come from unexpected places. And it is a novel that's very much about hopelessness. So from that point of view, and from that moment on in the book, I knew that whatever this thing I was writing was, which I still didn't know was going to be a novel, until I did the final word count, till I typed it out at the end, and did my word count, and went, oh, you're a novel. Um, <laughs> I, I, but at that point, I knew it wasn't for kids. Patrick Ness, the children's author, has said uh, that your ultimate lesson, referring to the darkness in, in your work, is to get to know it, make friends with it, then forget about it and live your life. Uh, does he define your mission well? That's actually a very good, uh, definitely a good summary of this book. Um, although, how friendly you can actually be with some of the things that crop up in this book. Um, not least of which is the thing that calls herself Ursula Monckton, um, is, is sort of open to question. It's all seen through, or it's the experience of a, of a seven-year-old child, and you said that at that age you loved books more than people, and your no well, which your narrator echoes. My, my, narrator, my narrator definitely gets to be me-ish. I mean, he's not me, but he looks out of the world with a head that is an awful lot like the head that I had. And he loves the things that I loved. Um, and his relationships with books and with stories are huge and important to him. Um, he gets to learn that there is more to life than books in this. And sometimes his, his relationship with books actually gets him out of trouble. Um, at one point, he gets to climb down a drain pipe. And he's learned to climb up and down this drain pipe because kids in books climb up and down drain pipes. So he is determined to do this too. 
You, but you described yourself as a, as a feral kid who lived in libraries, and I wonder if there was ever a point where you had to learn that you had to live, the, live life outside of books, not just in the pages of books. No. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm doomed to live in books. Once, once, I, once I sort of made my tentative escape from living in books as a reader, I discovered that now I was doomed to live inside books as a writer. But you're so I've never made my escape. You're I'm the father of three children? Yeah. How did you manage to live your life in books whilst parenting three children? Because I can tell you there's not a woman out there who's managed to do that. Uh, you have to nip out of books occasionally. Um, and and I, I, I obviously did. Um, but then, of course, what I would do is, is take the things I got from being a parent and drag them back into books. There was, there was a point where my son, Mike, um, who is now 29 and a software engineer at Google, um, was probably about four. And I'd said something to him that he found absolutely just beyond the pale. I think it might have been something like, you know it's your bedtime now. Um, I, I remember him just looking up at me so angry and these little fists clenching together and his face going red and he said, oh, I hate you. I wish I didn't have a dad. He said, I wish I had. And then you could see him actually <laughs> have to stop and figure out what else can you have? <laughs> and then he said, I wish I had goldfish. <laughs> and he went away and I just went, that's brilliant. I'm using that. And you know, five years later, I wrote a book called The Day I Swapped My Dad for Two Goldfish. Just because I thought, what, what a great thing. You, um, an awful lot of authors say that their, um, their childhood was spent with very little happening. You grew up in a Jewish Scientologist household, and I wondered w at what point you'd felt that you needed to start making things up, because actually it must have been quite a bizarre <laughs> environment to start with. Well, I think the thing about families, which is absolutely always the thing about families, is on the one hand, you start out convinced your family is normal. And then there comes a point where you start going, actually, my family's really weird. <laughs> and then you sort of join the human race properly at the point where you go, everybody's family's weird. There is nobody that's normal. They're just all weird in, in all sorts of different and interesting and peculiar ways. Um, and very often the things that actually made the family weird only th they only come into light years and years later, and you're suddenly having, uh, you know, I, I remember the, 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 the starting point for my book, Mr. Punch, um, was, was, was one of those great, wonderful, barking mad, weird family moments. I was, I was at a family wedding, and uh, I was talking to one of my aunts, and I mentioned my Uncle Monty, and I love my Uncle Monty. My Uncle Monty was awesome. He was a bookie, and he was a hunchback. He was about that tall. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> At what point did you think you had to start making things up? <laughs> but he was completely normal. He was my Uncle Monty. He was, uh, and he was great, because he was the only adult I could look in the eye. <laughs> and I, I love that. And so I'm talking to um, my Aunt Janet, and I, I say, why was? Monty a hunchback? Did, was he ill as a kid or something? What, what had happened? And she said, ah, no, no, he got, uh, he got thrown, thrown downstairs as a child. And I said, what? 
At which point, another aunt who'd been listening to this came over and she said, no, she said, Monty wasn't thrown downstairs as a child. He had tuberculosis. You're thinking of the twins. <laughs> and he wasn't thrown out of, of um, thrown down the stairs. He was thrown out of a window and he died. <laughs> I still have no idea who the twins were. <laughs> I don't know. But, but I'm suddenly... I had this idea in the back of my head anyway that I wanted to do something with Punch and Judy. And I'm suddenly going, hang on, Punch and Judy begins with a baby getting thrown out, thrown out of the window by Punch and the baby dies. And that's actually the beginning point of Punch because then Judy comes and tells him off and he kills her. And then the policeman goes, this is really weird. And I went to my dad and I said, dad, um, you know, is there any, any connection to Punch and Judy in our family? And he said, well, no, he says, no connection to Punch and Judy at all. He said, except, of course, you know, your grandfather, <laughs> Monty's brother, um, owned, there was, a, there was a, a couple of years in the 1950s when he owned this little failing amusement park um, in Portsmouth. And uh, he had a Punch and Judy man there, and he had a mermaid. And I said, mermaid? He said, well, she wasn't really a mermaid. She put on a tail and she just swam around all day. <laughs> But nobody came, and they closed it. And I just went, I can't make this up. I am going to write, and that was what my book, Mr. Punch, was about. It, it's, you know, the mermaid and the grandfather and the being thrown out the window. And it's, but it was all, for me, about the, the glorious weirdness of family. So and basically your books aren't down. autobiographical apart from the weird stuff. Exactly. Is what, you're saying. what I'm saying is the stuff that nobody could make up is obviously true. <laughs> The stuff where you go, well, that didn't happen. It's like, oh, no, that happened. Everything else I made. The, the, the stuff that sounds likely is always made. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to ask Neil one more question, and then I'm going to come to all of you, because I imagine that you have far better and more interesting questions than I do. So um, having been brought up in this house with the sort of convergence of religions and then getting immersed in mythology and all of those things, I mean, these are all influences that you have soaked up as well, aren't they, in terms of your storytelling? Oh, absolutely. Um, I think, you, you know, the, the, the joy of... It was like when people would ask me what research I did for American Gods. I'd say, well, I read everything I could about gods and myths compulsively for about 30 years, then I started writing it. They said, did you do any special research? <laughs> and I went, well... Three decades. It, w it was. Uh, you know, the only thing that I actually wound up researching for American Gods that was really um, finding out about the gods was going to, um, going to the CompuServe forum to try and find out if there were any good definitive books about the Slavic gods, because they're really, they I couldn't find anything. And what I learned was the little that I knew and that I'd found from various places was all that we knew about the Slavic gods. So I felt completely empowered to make stuff up. So do you have a favorite god? from all of those mythologies. Oh, I, g I go backwards and forwards. I love Anansi, um, but I love, I love all trickster gods. I think, uh, you know, Loki is wonderful, Anansi, um, I, will, I will take any of them. I was telling the lady um, from The Guardian yesterday who asked me what my, my favorite mythological character. Um, I said, what am I- It's quite a common question, obviously. <sighs> it is, right. if you're me, I, I, I'm I sorry. I feel slapped down. No. Well, <laughs> Nice lady from The Guardian said, do you have a favorite mythological character? And I, I was saying, well, I'm, I'm incredibly fond of the version of Jesus 
who turns, who really is the mythic Jesus, who turns up in the Gospel of the Infancy of Christ by Thomas, one of these, these weird lost Gospels. Because um, he's basically Damien from the Omen. Um, <laughs> he's meant to be Jesus. And he, he does occasionally do nice miracles, like you know, making little clay statues of birds, which he brings to life. And at one point, when a kid is pushed off a roof and other kids say, Jesus did it, he brings the kid back to life just long enough to go, it wasn't Jesus, it was him, <laughs> and then die again. Um, <laughs> but mostly what he does is he blights, he withers, he murders, and he sends people blind. So, you know, a teacher who raises his hand to strike Jesus, the hand just withers. And other kids who do things like bump into him die or go blind. And there's, there's this wonderful point at which Joseph turns to Mary and says, if he is going to keep killing people like this, we're going to have to stop him going out of the house. And I go, oh, this is Jesus. This is a mythological Jesus. And I, I love that. I love that you could get that kind of character who is obviously not the Jesus of the Bible. He's just a sort of lovely storytelling Jesus who cropped up in the second century. When, uh, you know, much like, it's like Superman comics. When they went, well, we got all these Superman comics. Let's do Superboy, the adventures of Superman when he was a boy. And he'll meet Lana Lang and, and Lois Lane and, and, and Laurie Lemaris and stuff early and uh, have sort of Superman adventures when he was a boy. So that was the... The same Jesus. Same Jesus, except for killing people. Nice addition, isn't realistic. Um, <laughs> do we have our first question? Who's going to be... Oh, look, great. Oh. Hello. Um, one of your biggest hits was Sandman, which is in part about dreams. And yep. like dreams are like when you're... Well, dreams are basically memories, aren't they? Like you're your brain cataloging it. And... Um, this story is more explicit in how it deals with memory. What's, um, what do you find so interesting about memory as a storyteller? Do you think dreams are memories, by the way? Can I add mm. that to that question? I, I think, I mean, I think dr memories are definitely one of the weird building blocks from which we compose dreams. Um, every now and then I'll see, I'll see these wonderful sort of pronouncements about dreams. Because I, 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 one of the things I, I did while writing Sandman was compulsively by books about dreams, by eminent scientists who should know better, who would announce that um, all people dream in black and white, all people dream in silence. And, and my favorite, you are not capable of imagining a face in a dream that you have not seen in real life. And I'm going, look, without a magic machine that looks into people's heads, you're making all of this stuff up. Um, but I, I think, the, 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 the weirdness, the dangers, and the pitfalls of memory um, is something that I love exploring. Um, because all of us, for all of us, essentially memory is identity. Um, you are your memories. The moment where you have no memory, your, your identity begins to fade. Um, and yet, memory is also absolutely deceptive. There are things that have happened to me that on the one hand I no longer remember and on the other hand I absolutely vividly remember the version that I have been telling people of these events forever and I don't really know if it's true or not because now my memory, much, much like Lord of the Rings, the book and the movie, um, where, you know, you, for years, 
One had read Lord of the Rings and you'd built up all of these characters in your head and you built up these worlds in your head and then you go and see the Peter Jackson films and suddenly you look back and you realize your memories of what the book looks like have now been eaten and colonized by the Peter Jackson film, like a <laughs> computer virus. <laughs> and you can't quite remember what Frodo looks like anymore because he doesn't look like that. Now he's the one in the movie. Um, and memory can do that. Memory can get colonized. And so, you know, the pitfalls and dangers of memory have been something that have fascinated me ever since Violent Cases, which was 1986 I wrote that. I was drawn by Dave McKean and published in 87. It was one of my very first things. Um, What's your own relationship to um, the films of your books, Beowulf and, and Coraline, you know, the animated film? Do you look at it and does it feel like a completely different experience to the thing that you originally imagined? Is it frustrating or pleasing? Um, mostly it's pleasing. Um, leaving Beowulf completely aside because that was written as an original script for Roger Avery who then didn't wind up making it and it got made as a giant motion capture extravaganza by Bob Zemeckis much to my surprise sort <laughs> of going <laughs> it wasn't quite what I'd expect it was meant to be a down and dirty funny Terry Gilliam-esque thing and now it's become this motion capture epic which was a bit weird but the, with, with my stuff i to dig deeper but I'll just leave that for now um but with, with things like Stardust and Coraline, um, I guess in my head, coming from a comics background where I was very familiar with the concept of Earth 1 and Earth 2. And in Earth 1, things were like the, things were the, the comics version of events and then there was Earth 2 where it was sort of like it was in the 40s and things were slightly different. And for me, I suppose the Stardust movie is definitely you know, the Earth 2 version of the Stardust thing. It, it's not quite the thing that I imagined. And there are things in there that I love that I didn't do, that, that, that you know, Jane Goldman and Matthew Vaughan brought. Um, and there are things that I really, really miss. And I look at it and go, I wonder, I would love that the bittersweet ending of the novel to be there in the film, but I don't know that that novel's ending would actually work in that film because the film is so upbeat and needs to end happily. Um, with Caroline, the film, I was actually given the script. I, I was given the first draft of the script by Henry Selleck, and, um, who directed it, and he gave it to me shortly after the book was published. And I remember reading it and just saying, Henry, it's too much like the book. It's not a film. And you have to make a film. And go away and come back with a script that feels like a movie. And he did. Um, so with Coraline, even though there are things that I, as an author, would not have done, it, it, it frustrates me slightly that the very end of Coraline does feel like she gets rescued by YB, um, the, the new boy character. And I look at it and go, no, the whole point of Caroline is she rescues herself. She doesn't have anybody else to rescue her, definitely not a boy. Um, but even with all that, I, I, I love Caroline. I think it's a, a beautifully constructed, beautifully made, gorgeously done thing. Right now, um, there, are, there are films out there in various stages of pre-production and creation and, and rolling down the ramp that I 
look at and I'm absolutely fascinated by. I, I just read the script to a movie by John Cameron Mitchell, um, to be made by John Cameron Mitchell, based on my short story, How to Talk to Girls at Parties, which is a essentially a, a short story about two boys in Croydon who are pretty much what I was like when I was 16, who go to a party and um, they fail to notice, or at least our narrator completely fails to notice that all of the girls at the party are aliens. Because <laughs> um, he is so desperate to try and get off with one of them that he really <laughs> isn't listening to what they're saying <laughs> and manages to go through this entire story having failed to notice that none of them are human. Um, they're essentially alien tourists. And what John Cameron Mitchell and his scriptwriter Philippa have done is take that and make that the first third of the movie and then it continues and you find out what happens after, which is wonderful fun. Uh, Joe Wright wants to make a film of the ocean at the end of the lane and uh, I love the idea of him doing it. The, the opening, you know, the first 20 minutes of Atonement I think are just one of my favorite films and he gets that childhood thing. Um, but you just let, you have, the projects you have to let go. I you way, have so to let yeah. them go. Unless you're going to do the whole thing. Unless you're actually going to say, right, I'm going to write the script. Probably I'm also going to have to direct it. Um, there's, a, there's a maniacal glint in his eye. I don't know if you can see it <laughs> out there, but I can see it maniacal. right here. But you you watch this space. But you kind <laughs> of do have to do that if you actually um, want the thing that you had in mind to reach the screen. And some, but sometimes you get lucky. You know, I felt like with Coraline, I got really lucky. Um, I felt like with, with the Doctor Who episode, The Doctor's Wife, I got really lucky. My, my script got shot, and I, I loved that. Another question from the audience. Don't let me hog. Hello there. Hello. Um, first, I'd like to thank you for uh, creating The Sandman, because, um, yeah, now I see you. Hello. So um, I'd, like to, I'd like to thank you for creating this album because I think it's the best comic I've ever read. Thank you. And thank you very much. Um, and then I'd like to ask you something else. There is, I know there is a, a movie being created by Guillermo del Toro, which is going to be called The Dark Justice League or something like that. And it's going to ha have in it the swamp thing, maybe the Sandman, maybe some, you know, all these, all these dark creatures from, from Vertigo. So I'm wondering if we're going to be lucky enough to have you as a writer. I know it sounds weird to have in the same team the Swamp Thing, Dead Man, uh, you know, all these the Demon characters, all these things. But um, I, I, have I, they called you yet? They d uh, Guillermo hasn't called me. Um, Guillermo, Guillermo is very busy. And Guillermo is also somebody who, and I love Guillermo. Guillermo is, is brilliant. I went uh, to the set of, Hell, of Hellboy 2 and got to shadow Guillermo on set for, for several weeks. Um, and uh, Guillermo is, is, and is somebody who I would write for and work with like a shot. Um, but he is also somebody who has a tendency to enthusiastically say yes to anything he thinks would be really fun and wonderful. Um, I think during the course of Hellboy, he definitely told me that we should definitely do a Doctor Strange movie and a demon movie as well, because then he would have, especially if he did the demon, because then he would have done Hellboy and Doctor Strange and the demon, he would have done it all. And, and that would be definitely cool. It would be incredibly cool. I don't <laughs> think it'll ever happen, because I think Guillermo is ridiculously, gloriously busy. 
Um, he's just finishing Pacific Rim, or he finished Pacific Rim. He's on to the next project already. Gosh, I wonder who he reminds me of. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> Thank you for your question. What about this gentleman over here? And I hope some women are going to ask some questions and not just leave it all up to me. Okay, I'll be over to you next. Uh, hi, Neil. Hello. Um, I just wanted to ask about the, uh, the sort of recently uh, kind of highly publicized new arrangement you have with Marvel and uh, just how one of your characters is being introduced into the, the universe uh, and just kind of what you can say about you know, the plans there at this stage. And as you're in a position now to maybe uh, look at the kind of Marvel Man, Miracle Man, uh, you know, sort of scenario, if there was any kind of, if anyone's talked to you about that at all. Um, the, uh, let's see, what can I say? Um, some of this is, is stuff that I just don't want to give stuff away. I do know how Angela is going to be reintroduced into the or introduced into the Marvel universe. I do know the backstory, um, which Joe Casada hatched some of with with Brian Bendis, and they they came up with some ideas, and then they came to me, and I said, oh, I love that, and we could do this, and we could do that, and they were going, oh yes, and we we sort of we have a a plan. This um, is seriously boy geek stuff. I'm afraid so. Whoa. Um, on the <laughs> so yes, she is coming in uh, and into the Marvel Universe, and it's kind of fun and exciting. The Marvel Man, Miracle Man, Mackerel Man um, mess. Um, as far as I know, Marvel bought the rights to the character from Mick Anglo, who created the character. Um, and I, I very much hope that at some point, Mark Buckingham and I will get to go back and finish that story, um, because I stopped writing Marvel Man in 1993 when Eclipse uh, comics went into bankruptcy and the rights to the character went into a peculiar limbo. It would be lovely. I am not, I, I, I'm not, not setting aside a time. I'm, I'm not holding my breath. I like the sound of mackerel man, though. Um, this lady here with the orange hairband, please. Yeah, mackerel man obviously would have like a really good gray and black costume with stripes. Yeah, on no, I'm liking the idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They like one of those mackerel skies. Exactly. I love your Never Bear book. So, and I was wondering if you're going to write any other book involving London Underground. Um, thank you. Um, I have just finished my first Never Wear thing in um, 16 years. I, I, um, partly just because Dirk Mag's and Heather Lama went off and made their amazing Radio 4 and Radio 4 Extra Neverwhere radio play starring uh, James McAvoy and Christopher Lee and Benedict Cumberbatch and everybody. And I was listening to that and going, this is great. <laughs> I've forgotten how good this is. <laughs> I miss these characters. <laughs> so I wrote a story, a very long short story, technically probably a novelette, um, called How the Marquis Got His Coat Back, which occurs in the week after the events of the Neverwhere book, when the Marquis comes back to life and he doesn't actually have his coat, and now he needs to go and get his coat. So you will meet things that are alluded to uh, in the book. And like And how will this come out? Will, will it come out as a, as a novel, as a novella? As it a will be published in an anthology called Rogues, edited okay. by Gardner Dozois and George R.R. R. Martin, probably sometime next year. I don't have publication information on it. Uh, you will no meet the, you meet the shepherds of Shepherd's Bush 
in it who are very, <laughs> very scary. <laughs> can hardly wait. Oh, and you meet the elephant from the Elephant and Castle. <laughs> this young lady here, and then I've got time for one or maybe two more questions, and I'm afraid that's going to be it. And you always do this. You always all put up your hands right At when you end. say there's only a few more minutes. My goodness, here Hi. you go. Um, how do you have the time to do all these cool things you do and keep up with Tumblr and Twitter? <laughs> Are you magic? <laughs> There's more than one of him. No, I'm, I'm not. Twitter is, I love Twitter because I can Twitter during downtimes. Twitter um, tends to happen for me in cabs, um, between things. Sometimes walking from place to place, you know, you thumb things up, do a, do a little bit of Twittering, put it away. Um, but it's not something that actually ever except when I had to do my giant Blackberry calendar of tales tweeting out 12 things that I've ever gone right. I'm going to be on Twitter for the next 12 hours. It's something you, you nip onto, see something interesting, retweet it. I, I love whoever said that they, they came here, asked for the Neil Gaiman event, and were asked, Neil Gaiman, is he a, is he a genius? Um, <laughs> I love. <laughs> that was, thank you for twittering that, whoever it was. You say that you don't spend too much uh, time on Twitter, but he does have to build defenses against... Oh, uh, absolutely. Uh, you, I you can explain. No, Otherwise, I I'll tell them. Marielle was asking me, <laughs> why wasn't it rather sort of strangely Luddite of me to, to write with fountain pens in notebooks? That's how I write. That's how um, he writes his books. All of my first drafts of, of everything. And I was explaining, no, because you can't Twitter from a notebook. <laughs> Nobody can send you a pop-up message. Nobody's, you, you can't check text messages. If, if I can't quite remember how a word that I've not used for a very, very long time is actually spelled, instead of Googling it and somehow finding myself exactly 75 minutes later buying something I didn't want on eBay, <laughs> I just carry on and resolve to look up the spelling when I type it out. Um, so I, I, I sort of build in defensive patterns. Um, Tumblr is also something that happens incredibly fast, but you can give the impression that you're actively much more active on Tumblr than you are by queuing things. And then people go, ah, oh, look at him, he is so active on Tumblr. Oh, and I like the sound of that. You just, you just <laughs> queue things up and they, they post for the next five days. Now we're going to very swiftly run through as many of you as we can. <laughs> so, ask so I'll try and do the two word answers. questions and then Neil's going to give you very succinct answers. Um, this gentleman over there and then I'll come to the middle and then I'll come over to you and then that's that. What myth would you most like to uh, see come true into real life? Nice question. I'm jealous. What, what myth would I like to come true in my life? Um, not necessarily in your life, just in life. What, what in li in life like or in my life? Because there is a, there is a very Dangerous shades of difference <laughs> there. Um, I think fundamentally, the, 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 the fundamental, one of the great myths, not actually of, of, of any specific culture, but of every culture, up to and including the wonderful wacky world of urban myths, is that people get what they deserve. And I would love that to be true. Mm. Um, as as a writer, as a, a creator of fictions, I want that to be true. Thank you. Very good question. Very good answer, if I might say as well. Uh, who was uh, there? Was someone here in the back? This lady, lady here. Um, do you always write away from home? Like, do you ever write in your living room or something? I I, I do write in living rooms, and um, but I try and 
I am much more comfortable writing in unfamiliar places. Um, I, you know, I built a gazebo. I didn't build it. I have people who build gazebos building. <laughs> I'm rubbish with a screwdriver. Um, but I had somebody build a gazebo, and I went out there and wrote there for about five or six years, and then it felt sort of feeling really familiar. And at that point, I got a little cabin on a lake where I would go. And then one day that looked familiar, so I went back to the gazebo, which by now I hadn't used for five years and was peculiar and alien again. And I, I'm What's really... What's wrong with familiar? Um, I don't know. I, I write better. It's like when you were asking me earlier before, and, and the thing, if I felt English or American or just uncomfortable in, in both countries and alien. And I feel uncomfortable in both countries, and I like the feeling uncomfortable. Um, the great thing about borrowing somebody's house to write in is Can you're not it. really... Well, no, it's actually the other thing. You're sort of slightly more careful of it. It's not your space. You feel a bit awkward, and I'll retreat into my head and start making up stuff to feel comfortable. And you don't know what's in the fridge, do you? You never um, do. <laughs> <laughs> um, this lady here. Hi. <laughs> uh, we love your book, uh, Neverwhere, and... Um, we all we love me and my friend your all the <laughs> all the characters, but we wanted to ask about Angel. Um, like I don't want to spoil <laughs> I spoil it, but uh, did he really flood this mythological city? And he oh he did, but as far as he's concerned, why? they deserved it. And <laughs> yeah, that's why we have a heating just dis discussion do about why did he do that? Do you know the the lovely thing about fiction which really is the glorious thing about fiction, is one of the places that, that good fiction derives its power from is as much from the things that are not said as from the things that are. And sometimes, as an author, you ma can make things better by actually going in and saying, I have not told you this story, I will tell you this story. And sometimes part of the joy and the power of fiction is that it leaves holes that people can go in and go, well, I wonder what really happened then. And I think yeah. the story of Islington and Atlantis is one that I, I would love to read the fan fiction on that if I read fan fiction. More to the point, I'd love people to write fan fiction um, <laughs> about it. And I'd love, I love the idea that you had arguments about it. I that hope that answers your question in part. And just finally now, this very patient man over here. Hello. I'd like to also thank you for the Graveyard book. And I'd love to know what your inspirations were for writing The Graveyard Book? The Graveyard Book is one of those lovely books that I actually can point to the moment that it came into existence, which so often I can't. And you know, Coraline, people say, where did you come up with that? I go, ah. <laughs> just, just, I become inarticulate. Um, but The Graveyard Book, I lived in a little house on a street, and it was, a it was sort of a flat above a shop and it was very tall and thin, and there were lots and lots of stairs. And I had a two-year-old son who loved nothing more than his tricycle. And there is a problem with a tricycle <laughs> and a tall house with lots of <laughs> stairs, which is if he rides it, he will die. And so every day, I would walk him across the lane um, to the graveyard over the road. <laughs> and he would pedal his little tricycle for all he was worth around the graveyard, <laughs> and I would beam at him proudly as a father. <laughs> and I just remember looking at him and going, he looks so happy here, pedaling through the gravestones. I thought, you know, 
you could do a story of, wouldn't it be fun to tell a story of a kid in a graveyard? And then I had one of those glorious flashes of inspiration. I thought you could make it just like the Jungle Book. Only in the Jungle Book, you have a kid who gets lost in the jungle and is raised by wild animals and taught all the things that wild animals know. And I could do a story about a kid who wanders into a graveyard and is raised by dead people and taught all of the things that dead people know. And I'll call it the graveyard book. And I ran upstairs, wrote half a page, looked at the half a page that I'd written, and went very, very sensibly, I am not good enough to write this book. Actually, this book is better. It's a better idea than I'm currently capable of doing. I will put it off until I'm ready. And every five or six years, I would write a few pages of the graveyard book and look at it and go, no, I'm, I'm, when, I'm, when I'm ready. And then in 2003, I remember going, I just finished writing, 2004, I just finished writing Anansi Boys, and I thought, I'm not getting any better. Doesn't actually matter <laughs> if I'm good enough to write the graveyard book or not. I am probably about as good as I'm going to be so I may as well start it. And that was the point I started writing the graveyard book. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very thank much. Thank you so much Neil for Gaiman. coming. Thank you, everybody.